Chapter 10 of The Maid of Skur. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. The Maid of Skur by R. D. Blackmore. Chapter 10 Under the Rock. For a while, the power of the lightning seemed to quench the wind almost, and one continuous roar of thunder rang around the darkness. Then, with a bellow, the wind sprang forth, like a wild bull out of a mountain, and shattered the rain, and drowned the thunder, and was lord of everything. Under its weight the flat sea quivered, and the crests flew into foam, and the scourge upon the waters seemed to beat them all together, the whirlwinds now were past and done with, and a violent gale begun. And in the burst and change of movement there appeared a helpless ship. She was bearing towards Pool Tavan, as poor Bardi's boat had done, but without the summer glory and the golden wealth of waves. All was smooth and soft and gentle as the moonlight in a glass when the little boat came gliding with its baby captain. All was rough and hard and furious as a fight of devils, when that ship came staggering with its load of sin and woe. And yet there had not been so much as twenty-four hours between the two. Not one of our little coasting vessels, but a full-rigged ship she loomed, a foreign build, although at present carrying no colours. I saw at once what her business was, to bring from the West Indies sugar, rum, and such-like freight, to Bristol, or to the Dutchman. This was in her clearance bill, but behind that she had other import not so clearly entered. In a word, she carried negroes from the overstocked plantations, not to be quite slaves, at least in the opinion of their masters, but to be distributed for their own Christian benefit, at a certain sum per head, among the Bristol or Dutch merchants, or wherever it might be. And it serves them right, I always say, for the fuss we now make about those black men must bring down the anger of the Creator, who made them black, upon us. As the gale set to its work, and the sea arose in earnest, and the lightning drifted off into the scud of clouds, I saw as plain as a pike-staff, that the ship must come ashore, and go to pieces very likely, before one could say, Jack Robinson. She had been on the skur weather sands already, and lost her rudder, and some of her stern-post, as the lift of the water showed, and now there was nothing left on board her of courage, or common seamanship. The truth of it was, although of course I could not know it then, that nearly all the ship's company acted as was to be expected from a lot of foreigners, that is to say, if such they were. They took to the boats in a kind of panic when first she struck among the sands in the whirlwind which began the storm. There could have been then no great sea running, only quiet rollers, and being but two miles off the shore, they hoped, no doubt, to land well enough, after leaving the stupid negroes and the helpless passengers to the will of Providence. However, before they had rowed a mile, with the flood-tide making eastward, 
one of the boats was struck by lightning, and the other caught in a whirl virago, as the Spaniards call it, and not a soul ever came to land, and scarcely any bodies. Both these accidents were seen from Porthcawl Point by Sandy McGraw through a telescope, and much as he was mine enemy, I do him the justice to believe it, partly because he could look for no money from any lies in the matter, and still more because I have heard that some people said that they saw him see it. But to come back to this poor ship, the wind, though blowing madly enough, as a summer gale is often hotter for a while than a winter one, had not time and sweep as yet to raise any very big rollers. The sea was sometimes beaten flat, and then cast up into hillocks, but the mighty march of waters, fetched by a tempest from the Atlantic, was not come, and would not come in a veering storm like this, for it takes a gale of at least three tides, such as we never have in summer, to deliver the true buffet of the vast Atlantic. Nevertheless, the sea was nasty and exceeding vicious, and the wind more madly wild, perhaps, than when it has full time to blow. In short, the want of depth and power was made up by rage and spite. And for a ship not thoroughly sound and staunch in all her timbers, it had been better, perhaps, to rise and fall upon long billows, with a chance of casting high and dry, than to be twirled round and plucked at, thrown on beam ends, and taken aback, as this hapless craft was being, in the lash of rocky waters and the drift of gale and scud. By this time she was close ashore, and not a man, except myself, to help or even pity her. All around her was wind and rocks, and a mad sea rushing under her. The negroes, crouching in the scuppers, or clinging to the masts and rails, or rolling over one another in their want of pluck and skill, seemed to shed their blackness on the snowy spray and curdled foam, like cuttlefish in a lump of froth. Poor things! They are grieved to die as much, perhaps, as any white man, and my heart was overcome, in spite of all I know of them. The ship had no canvas left, except some tatters of the fore topsail and a piece of the main royals, but she drifted broadside on, I dare say five or six knots an hour. She drew too much water, unluckily, to come into Pool Tavan at that time of the tide, even if the mouth had been wide enough, but crash she went on a ledge of rocks thoroughly well known to me, every shelf of which was a razor. Half a cable's length below the entrance to Pool Tavern, it had the finest steps and stairs for congers and for lobsters, whenever one could get at it in a low spring tide, but the worst of beaks and barbs for a vessel to strike upon at half flow, and with a violent sea, and a wind as wild as bedlam. With the pressure of these, she lay so much to leeward before striking, and perhaps her cargo had shifted, that the poor blackies rolled down the deck like pickling walnuts on a tray, and they had not even the chance of dying each in his own direction. I was forced to shut my eyes, till a grey squall came, and caught her up, as if she had been a humming-top, and flung her, as we drown a kitten, into the mashing waters. 
Now I hope no man who knows me would ever take me for such a fool as to dream for a moment, after all I have seen of them, that a negro is our own flesh and blood and a brother immortal, as the parsons begin to prate, under some dark infection. They differ from us a great deal more than an ass does from a horse, but for all that I was right down glad, as a man of loving kindness, that such a pelt of rain came up as saved me from the discomfort, or pain, if you must have the truth, of beholding several score, no doubt, of unfortunate blacks a-drowning. If it had pleased Providence to drown any white men with them, and to let me know it, beyond a doubt I had rushed in, though without so much as a rope to help me, and as it was I was ready to do my very best to save them, if they had only shown some readiness to be hauled ashore by a man of proper colour. But being, as negroes always are, of a most contrary nature, no doubt they preferred to drift out to sea rather than Christian burial. At any rate, none of them came near me, kindly disposed as I felt myself, and ready to tuck up my Sunday trousers at the very first sight of a woolly head. But several came ashore next tide, when it could be no comfort at all to them, and such, as I have always found, is the nature of black people. But for me it was a sad, and as I thought severe visitation to be forced on a Sabbath day, my only holiday of the week, to meditate over a scene like this. As a truly consistent and truth-seating Christian, especially when I grow round with fish on a Monday morning among non-conformists, it was a bitter trial for me to reflect upon those poor negroes, gone without any sense at all, except a good Christian's wickedness, to the judgment we decree for all, except ourselves and families. But there was worse than this behind, for after waiting as long as there seemed good chance of anything coming ashore, which might go into my pocket, without risk of my pension, and would truly be mine in all honesty, and after seeing that the wreck would not break up till the tide rose higher, though all on board were swept away, suddenly it came into my head about poor Bardie and Bunny. They were worth all the niggers that ever made coal look the colour of pipe-clay, and with a depth of self-reproach, which I never deserved to feel, having truly done my utmost, for who could walk in such weather, forth I set, resolved to face whatever came out of the heavens. Verily nothing could come much worse than what was come already. Rheumatics, I mean, which had struck me there, under the rock, as a snake might. Three hours ago all the world was sweat, and now all the air was shivers. Such is the climate of our parts, and many good people rail at it, who have not been under discipline. But all who have felt that gnawing anguish, or that fiery freezing, burning at once, and benumbing, like a dead bone put into the live ones, with a train of powder down it, all these will have pity for a man who had crouched beneath a rock for at least three hours, with dripping clothes, at the age of two and fifty. For a hero I never set up to be, and never came across one until my old age in the navy, as hereafter to be related. And though I had served on board of one in my early years, off La Hague and Cape Grinez, they told me she was only a woman that used to hold a lantern. Hero, however, or no hero, 
in spite of all discouragement and the aching of my bones, resolved I was to follow out the fate of those two children. There seemed to be faint hope indeed concerning the little stranger, but Bunny might be all alive and strong, as was right and natural for a child of her age and substance. But I was sore downcast about it when I looked around and saw the effect of the storm that had been over them, for the alteration of everything was nothing less than amazing. It is out of my power to tell you how my heart went up to God, and all my spirit and soul was lifted into something purer when, of a sudden, in a scoop of sand, with the rushes overhanging, I came on those two little dears, fast asleep in innocence. A perfect nest of peace they had, as if beneath their father's eye, and by his own hand made for them. The fury of the earth and sky was all around and over them. The deep revenge of the sea was rolling, not a hundred yards away, and here those two little dots were asleep, with their angels trying to make them dream. Bunny, being the elder and much the stronger child, had thrown the skirt of her frock across poor little Bardie's naked shoulders, while Bardie, finding it nice and warm, had nestled her delicate head into the lap of her young nurse, and had tried, as it seemed, before dropping off, to tell her gratitude by pressing Bunny's red hands to her lips. In a word, you might go a long way and scarcely see a prettier or more moving picture, or more apt to lead a man who seldom thinks of his maker. As for me, I became so proud of my own granddaughter's goodness, and of the little lady's trust and pure repose therein, that my heart went back at once to my dead boy Harry, and I do believe that I must have wept if I could have stopped to look at them. But although I was truly loath to spoil this pretty picture, the poor things must be partly wet, even in that nest of rushes, which the whirlwinds had not touched. So I awoke them very gently, and shook off the sand, while they rubbed their eyes, and gaped, and knew no more of their danger than if they had been in their own dear beds. Then, with Bardie in my arms, and Bunny trotting stoutly with her thumb spliced into my trousers, I shaped a course for Skur Farmhouse, having a strong gale still abaft, but the weather slightly moderating. End of chapter 10